Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this evening's Data Bytes, kindly supported by Ordnance Survey. I'm Gavin Freegard, Programme Director for Data and Digital Government here at the Institute, and it's wonderful to welcome you all to the seventh IFG Data Bytes, um, or as my inimitable colleague Jill Rutter put it, less Data Bytes, more a full-scale gourmet tasting menu. <laughs> And we have another fantastic feast for you this evening. Um, but before we tuck in, there's a little bit of housekeeping. We are on the record tonight, and we are being live streamed. So hello to those of you watching us at home. The hashtag is IFGDataBytes, and you can also follow at IFGEvents. And for the first time in a decade, we have changed the Wi-Fi. <laughs> Hashtag cybersecurity. Um, so the network is IFG Internet Hotspot. Password is all lowercase institute123. Now, hands up if you've been to Databytes before. Welcome back. Hands up if you're new. Welcome. We'll try not to scare you too much. Um, for those of you who are new, I tend to start with some visualizations about the current state of British government and politics. <laughs> Uh, but actually, since Parliament's dissolved, there are actually quite a few that, that we can look at. So just to give a sense of what's changed since 2017, this is, the, uh, this is the House of Commons after the 2017 general election. You can see the Conservatives, with the help of the DUP, just get across that 320 needed for an effective working majority. Let's see what it looked like at one minute past midnight today. It's a little bit different. Uh, so there's been quite a lot of uh, change, not least because so many MPs have changed party allegiance. This is showing it back to 1945. You can see that 96, sorry, 1966-1970, there's quite a lot of change with the SDP in the 80s as well. But let's see what happens when we put in the most recent session. 89 changes of allegiance, people defecting, people losing the whip, people regaining the whip. Uh, we've also had that they'll stand down. I think we're currently up to 68, but I've probably missed one in the last few minutes as well. Um, so, of course, we saw a big decision in British politics a few weeks ago, incredibly momentous, something that's been the talk of SW1 ever since. Yes, the IFG has launched a podcast. <laughs> now, what role could charts possibly place, play in a podcast, I hear you ask? It's a fantastic... Uh, non-visual medium. We couldn't possibly make data work as audio, could we? Well, we <laughs> uh, Data sonification, yes, it is a thing, really. Um, this is actually one of our most famous charts. It's this one. Um, these are what's happened to civil service staff members since the 2010 spending review. Um, that's what we're taking as our baseline, although it's middle C, so technically it's a treble line. They cut, they cut that one from the podcast, you'd be surprised to know. Um, you're going to hear notes um, sort of falling or rising from that baseline. Um, every few notes you'll get a chord, um, and that's giving you the start of a calendar year. So let's listen to civil service staff numbers. Thank you. 
Um, I'm glad you enjoyed it, because we've got another one coming up. <laughs> um, this is showing defeats in the House of Commons by Prime Minister. You'll hear a rise of a semitone for each defeat, and we've sort of looked at it by calendar year, which is what the chords will be. Um, so you can see there are some Prime Ministers, not that many. Others stand out. Um, so we're going, to hear to, we're going to listen to a few of them. So first of all, this is Clement Attlee. David Cameron. Boris Johnson so far. <laughs> Join us next time for a full orchestration. <laughs> It'd be like Holst's Planet Suite, but for government departments, it's going to be fantastic. Um, so, for those of you um, who've been before or not, um, why we're doing Data Bytes brings together the different data communities across government, shows everybody what we can achieve with data, and puts some best practice and interesting projects on the record. Uh, this is how it's going to work. You're going to hear four presentations on data projects. Each speaker will have eight minutes to present. Yes, just eight minutes being counted down there below the Ordnance Survey banner. And that will be followed by eight minutes of Q&A. Again, eight minutes, and I will set that timer going as soon as the first question is asked. We'll then move on to the next speaker. Um, you can find previous ones there. Now, there has been a slight change to um, today's lineup because obviously the pre election guidance has now kicked in. Um, pre election period, um, of course, for sort of problematic historical reasons, also known as PERDA. Um, so, unfortunately, Marcus Bell from the Race Disparity Unit and Guy Marcus from DCMS are unable to join us tonight. Um, but we are looking forward to welcoming them, welcome, welcoming them to a future Data Bytes at some point in the near future. Um, if you are a civil servant and you'd like to ask a question, you might want to think about your fake name now. Um, we've got a fantastic lineup for you tonight. Um, first of all, we'll be hearing from Miranda Sharp from the Ordnance Survey talking about geospatial data and better citizen outcomes. Lots of exciting maps, but much more than that. Then we'll hear from Nick Granger talking about digital excellence, data as a catalyst for creating economic value. She's from the Oil and Gas Authority. Uh, described at an event I was at a few weeks ago as one of the most exciting data organisations in government, so no pressure. We'll then have David Kane from 360 Giving talking about the potential of charity data. And last but not least, Miranda Marcus from the Open Data Institute on using data to improve local public services. And very grateful to David and Miranda for jumping in at the last moment. So thank you very much indeed. We might have another data bytes before the end of the year on the 4th of December, so do put that in your calendars now. We are um, hoping to secure some funding, and also PERDA may still sort of put paid to that. If we don't do a data bytes, we might just go down the pub, so we'll let you know about that. If you'd like to pitch a presentation, please do get in touch with me. We do need um, funding to continue the series, um, so if you are interested in supporting the series, please 
email that incredibly long uh, email for David Trepepe Lewis or just email Pratesh instead, uh, which is a lot easier and much shorter, or come and talk to us afterwards. <laughs> and if you like everything that the IFG does with data, and we do a lot with data, um, please do come along to the launch of our latest performance tracker next week. Performance tracker, our sort of data-informed and data visualization-driven view of performance of public services next Wednesday uh, here, 6 until 7. So, with five seconds left, I could have squeezed in another terrible joke. Um, I will now hand over to our first speaker, uh, Miranda from Ordnance Survey. I don't think I've ever had such a hard act to follow in my life. Um, so no sonification uh, in, this, in this presentation. Um, so yes, I work for Ordnance Survey, famous wherever I go for beautiful pictures such as these. People tell me how much um, they love a map. Um, but I, what I want to leave you, leave you with today is that a map is just a mechanism uh, for engaging people, for deriving greater insight, and for making better decisions across a whole slew of, uh, of examples that I'm going to canter through. I want to start with the journey both through space and time, which are the two best vectors through which to examine data, uh, to the early 80s when a very lovely colleague of mine, Carl, was surveying this bit of, off the coast of Scotland, um, and he was carefully surveying the pylons, which are the, on the black line. Um, he went the next year and discovered, before the era of this satellite-aided centimetre accuracy technology that we now have at, at our disposal, that the pylons weren't where he put them the first time he was there. And he rang head office and said, what are you doing here then? And they said, well, boy. Um, the pylons where the wire changes direction are carefully placed accurately in the correct place. But the rest we just space out evenly because it's a bit easier on the eye. Um, and, and that was how it was in the early 80s because it, cartography was the art and data, and data was not about accuracy at that time. So rest assured, it's now much more about accuracy. And as, as, a, as, a, as a data company, we now are able to go from the beguiling and the escapism of the islands off, the, off Great Britain to these, the, the work that piece of our, one of our graduates did last summer, which looks at the UK's uh, most complex motorway junctions, which is a, a wistful and interesting uh, representation. Uh, but it's not about the map, it's about the data. And what we have here are the, is the land use change statistics which is some work that we've been doing on behalf of MHCLG for the last 10 years. So this is not about putting more stuff on the map. It is using the place component of data to drive better decisions. And so I'm, I've put this rather lurid thing on here, but it, what this data has enabled us to do is understand what's happening to our green space, is to understand where and when new houses are being built, are they being built on brownfield land, for example, and how might we understand um, our high streets. It doesn't come out particularly brilliantly on this, but we can pick out high street extents um, when we look at this type of data. And so it's not all, it's, um, here we're both understanding the current environment, and, and here's some work we did in a collaboration with Border Force to understand how they might properly define, uh, how might they might properly use their resources. Uh, so we, we worked with a number of other bodies. Um, we worked with UK Hydrographic Office data and others to do a risk assessment um, to understand where, where the, the greatest risk of, of bringing aboard contraband goods on the UK coastline might be. Uh, we did it in um, 100, 100 metre sections and then were able to make better use of public money uh, by doing that sort of data analysis. Um, 
And so that, again, looking at the current environment. Um, and then here, we were doing some work with other government bodies to understand the impact of decisions that were made. So we worked both with the, the, the public sector in Manchester and with the West Midlands Combined Authority to see the impact of price paid on price paid for property of infrastructure investment. So we're looking at um, the, uh, the Metroline extension down to South Manchester and to Wolverhampton and, and, and New Street. And we were able to see very quickly uh, that the number and proportion of flats increased within walking distance of a new station and that people were paying more for those flats easily within the calendar year. We suspect that people are paying more for larger properties over a longer period and the data shows uh, that there is an increase in the number of net businesses within these type of areas. Now, it's very lumpy data, and you are the last audience I would try and differ differentiate between causation and correlation. Uh, but uh, again, it's interesting information to look at. Um, so I've talked about how we might look at data in the past, um, but where, where's an opportunity where we might have used data better? Um, I want to take you to this road in West Yorkshire. Um, and here are the addresses, the dots, and the green space that are around that road. Uh, and that's, so that's data that Ordnance Survey hold. And it's looking at data through the prism of place, uh, where the traditional um, spreadsheets re relating to that property might not have been able to put them in quite the same context. And you'll notice in this road that it crosses a river. Um, and quite often when you've got a single crossing point on a river, it carries not only the transport links, but also the communications and power infrastructure that serve a community. Now, the, the sharp-eyed amongst you, and particularly those of you at the front, will notice this is the bridge in Tadcaster, which was wiped away in the flood event of 2017. Now, everybody knew that their pipe was on that bridge. Nobody knew that everybody's pipe was on that bridge. Uh, and so there was quite a lot of disruption as a result of the flood event. Um, and um, and what, what we might have done, or what we, we, may, we are, it is now possible to do, is to look at that information, um, do an analysis of weak points in the network, and as a retrospective analysis by Cambridge University revealed, used, uh, use Earth observation data, which would have told us that that, that bridge was wobbling with every passing rain, rain, rain shower, um, and, and intervened appropriately. All the examples I've cantered through so far um, can be met with data which is currently collected and published by Ordnance Survey. But what about the Internet of Things? What about driverless cars? Um, what about this smart city? Will that not create, will that not have a need for better and more data? Well, the short answer to that is, of course, yes. Uh, and uh, this is a piece of work that we completed as part of a DCMS funded IoT uh, pilot in South Manchester where we're together uh, to support the 20 partners um, who were looking for use cases and benefits from, from this new technology. We mapped three square kilometres um, south of Manchester Piccadilly and, uh, and, and found 48,000 additional assets on which we needed information. And for those of you who worried about the, what the little dots that appeared at the end were, they were the location of all uh, the CCTV cameras. Yeah. <laughs> My last slide is this. Oh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my, last, <laughs> my last slide is this beguiling video of uh, the UK water network, Great Britain water network, which I know um, has already been used 
to, to transform the way we do flood resilience planning in the UK. So I can tell you with every confidence that this has done exactly what we want to use geospatial information for. It's engaging. By looking at it, I'm sure you'll derive new insight. And it has transformed better decisions for a whole set of people across the UK. Thank you very much. <laughs>
Uh, on, the, on the open master map, I am not the best qualified person to answer it, but there are people in the room who are much better and more, and more up to date with these things than me. Uh, so don't let me get away with that, but I don't know the answer. Um, so there's an excellent article that I read last week that came from Australia because the Australian mapping agency have stopped producing paper maps. Uh, and they talked about the best maps tell the best little white lies. Because a, every map is a simplification of the real world. Uh, and answers a, a set of use cases, and OS has a long and proud history of telling the best white lies and giving the best truth. Uh, and what differentiates um, a, a, an entity like OS um, is that we have to be transparent in the way that we bend and shape our data in order to make a world that is neither a perfect sphere nor flat um, appear, appear, um, uh, appear attractive on a map. Um, whereas those who, who might do it for different ends um, uh, may not be as clear themselves um, as to how that data is bent and stretched and therefore is less able to support, uh, for example, high precision location requirements such as driverless cars. Uh, so uh, so my, and the, the, my, the most awful story about driverless cars is the standard is yet to be agreed as to where a driverless car is. Um, and, uh, and, and that'll be important um, whether... Uh, <laughs> let's just agree that'll be important. <laughs> Great. Next round of questions. Otherwise, I'll have to inflict some upon you, and nobody wants that. Um, we've got one there. Any more? And one right at the back as well. Thank you. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I was just surprised how much data the Ordnance Survey has, actually. Um, I can't really put this into a question and other than, you know, how did you get to this point where you, you are so focused on, on data as opposed to maybe as we eulogize about mapping? <laughs> Thank you. And then right at the back as well. Uh, hi. It's working. Uh, are there any security implications of making it easier for the public to put together different data sources? Thank you. Uh, yes. Oh, I love these questions. Um, so, um, data versus mapping. Um, it's been a journey. <laughs> uh, we were the first national mapping agency to digitise in 1971, which means we have the most archaic um, architecture on which it is built. Um, so we've made all the mistakes that other that other in, other other people are also learning, um, and, um, and and because I suppose there's a, there's an unusual concentration at, at OS of people um, of capability within a sing, single organisation. So in, when you compare us to other international organisations, um, the capability is much more diffuse. So it's it's much less uh, and, and not as close to the market. So we have commercial customers as well as government customers, and that means that we are. Um, compelled to use our data for a multitude of use cases. Um, uh, so uh, the ethics question um, is, is a brilliant one, and I'm really glad you asked it. So um, we we've launched an initiative a couple two weeks ago, which Ben's in charge of, um, called the Benchmark Initiative, uh, which looks at the ethics of location data. Because so often location is the element of data which strips all form of privacy from it, privacy and security from it. Um, and yet it is important in order to correlate data together. Uh, and so that's a, it's an almost impossible ethical conundrum, uh, but one we are exploring through a range of talks and events and entrepreneurship in residence programs for which, I would in, which are funded, for which I would encourage all to apply. Free advert. And we've got time, I think, for one more question, possibly even two. Gentlemen there. 
Uh, with reference to what you said about Tadcaster Bridge, what steps have any of the OS taking to improve the mapping of utility infrastructure? Um, so uh, the Geospatial Commission um, have commissioned a trial. I'm looking for my colleagues at the Geospatial Commission, um, who are who are we are working with both the Greater London Authority and Northumbrian bits of Northumbria um, to look at the uh, to look at uh, underground asset mapping in particular. Um, I'm also very excited by the work that the National Infrastructure Commission have done on the future of regulation, uh, where they've called for the UKRN uh, to take a much stronger role. Um, uh, within the sort of the, the management of data within regulated utilities. And we also welcome the work of the Energy Data Task Force, which is looking at energy assets, um, and most importantly of all, in my opinion, the National Digital Twin Programme funded out of CDVB and BASE. Thank you Thank very you much indeed. And next, we have Nick from the Oil and Gas Authority. Hello, everyone. So I'm Nick Granger from the Oil and Gas Authority. So I'm going to talk to you about digital excellence and our program to use data as a catalyst for creating economic value. So very briefly, a short overview of what we do as an organization. We were created about four or five years ago as a result of a review that was done into the North Sea oil and gas and we, we have a role to regulate, influence, and promote the UK oil and gas industry, and also to fully support the energy transition. And we see data as being a critical element of that as we try to work as a data-centric business and also to work with the industry to move towards using data to make our decisions. So I'm now going to start off by showing you a video in terms of what we're doing for digital excellence. With up to 20 billion barrels of remaining potential, our shared goal with industry is to maximize economic recovery of hydrocarbon resources on the UK continental shelf. From exploration and asset stewardship to decommissioning and supply chain, the Oil and Gas Authority is working across the sector to drive a new level of performance across the industry. Putting data at the heart of the energy sector as we transition to a low-carbon economy means harnessing the expertise of our people to drive lateral thinking, unlocking opportunities with data and digitalization, and creating powerful data sets to create new insights. This is the culmination of three years of, of fantastically hard but exciting work. Since the Oil & Gas Authority was formed, we have introduced a new data-centric asset stewardship process, significantly improved production reporting and exploration data, and created a new range of mapping and geospatial tools. This focus on data is driving collaboration and performance, from boosting geochemical analysis reporting to launching of a seismic data program promoting exploration activity to impressive usage and download figures for the OGA open data site and packages, 
The launch of the UK National Data Repository, NDR, was the first milestone on our road to digital excellence. With decades of industry-reported data becoming accessible to all, across industry, academia, government and the public, enabling our digital future. Together, we will build a sustainable and flexible data environment. A single open platform delivering valuable insight that stimulates innovation and accelerates change. With sophisticated analysis and exciting technologies, our vision is to be a world-leading authority in enabling a digital future. And for the UKCS to be recognized globally as a data-driven basin, where regulatory compliance is understood and embraced, and where data underpins all of our strategic decisions. By understanding the needs of industry, government, and academia, we can deliver a better user experience. Transforming the ability to gain access to information analysis and creating the conditions for the application of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Our digital strategy aims to embed a culture of digital excellence. Use our influence to unlock value from data and digitalization. Promoting a digital approach to maximize economic recovery and support the energy transition and continually improve our digital services. Okay, so the joys of trying to run a video um, that doesn't seem to have loaded completely, but hopefully that gives you a bit of idea in terms of our approach um, to our digital excellence program. So we've we've been working on this since the organisation was created and one of the first things we did after the review that created the organisation was to say that we didn't as an organisation have the right powers in place to collect the data from industry. So we've worked on that for a couple of years and have those powers now that there is a responsibility on the companies that are operating in the North Sea to submit data to us and then we after a certain confidentiality period have the right to disclose that data openly. So that data can then be used for academics, for the supply chain, for inward investment, to look at the different options to add value into the UKCS. We've got a couple of products in place. The National Data Repository was launched about six months ago. Um, started with 173 terabytes of data, has been downloaded from that site since then. And this site is openly available to anyone, so anyone can log on to the National Data Repository and see huge amounts of data that they can then use. And what we're hoping is that this will encourage businesses to take that data, use machine learning, use that wider data that you perhaps wouldn't have as one company to be able to understand the UKCS in a different way. We also have the Open Data Portal, which has been around for uh, about 18 months longer. This holds data that we as the organization have either generated or purchased directly ourselves. So this is completely open data that anybody can again access and use to look at the different areas within 
the UKCS and also wider in terms of oil and gas. Um, and as you can see on this, it runs off a GIS system and it can be used to access these different data types. Across our digital platform then, we've got a huge number of users. Um, 183 terabytes of data has been downloaded from that platform. 184 countries, I think it's gone up to 191 countries now that are accessing that data. And that's an intention for creating it was to encourage inward investment into the basin as well. And as the video has sort of uh, stuttered a little bit, I've come to this point a little bit earlier, so I'm within the eight minutes, so I will hand over to questions. Thank you very much, Nick. And apologies for the sound issues there. Um, I think we've already got lots of people wanting to ask questions. We've got one over there. Uh, did I see another hand going up somewhere? Great. Uh, Dave, real name. Um, <laughs> you talked a lot about, well, you, you mentioned a few times around um, transition to a low-carbon economy, but this sounds like a lot of ways to both extract oil, um, use Palantir, uh, who have quite a problematic history, and it, like a lot of data resources that where we might be spending carbon again <laughs> managing the data. Can you tell me a little bit about how this actually addresses the systemic problem of climate change in this country rather than makes it easier to extract more oil? Thank you, Dave. Um, anyone else want to ask a question in the first round? Uh, and there as well. Hi, could you um, say a little bit more about the new data powers that you mentioned and how do they work and what, what's the period of time that you need to wait before you can then release that data? Thank you. Okay, so um, in terms of your question, Dave, around sort of the energy transition, so our primary remit is to maximise economic recovery in oil and gas. Um, but as we're moving to a, a low carbon economy with the net zero agenda for 2050, we are currently working with a number of different government organisations, um, arms length bodies, to look at the options for energy integration. So you will have seen on our corporate plan the link with wind farms. Um, there are a lot of the infrastructure that's already in place in the UK CS that can be used for new technologies such as carbon capture and storage. Um, in terms of the new data powers, so those are around uh, three different areas. Firstly, in terms of reporting, so the requirement for certain individuals and operators to report data to us. There's then a requirement around retention, so how long the companies themselves have to retain the data in what formats. Um, but I think the one that has the most impact um, or potential impact going forward is around the disclosure ability. So different types of data have different disclosure periods. So some of those will be longer. So some data, seismic data, for example, we give a longer period so that the organization that has generated that can create a commercial return from it. But some pieces of data are released um, almost straight away on um, reporting to us. It, it really depends on the, the different data types and we have a, a breakdown of all of those. 
Uh, next round of questions, and again, I'm very conscious um, we've got quite a gender imbalance in the questioners so far. Um, any questions? I've got one down here. Any more? I'm Steve Parks from Convivio. Um, you've had some success in getting data opened up through use of your statutory powers. Have you had any success through simple negotiation? Have you been able to get people to provide you with more data? And what have you learned and what tools have you used? Has it been uh, memorandums of understanding? Uh, has it been data sharing agreements? What have you found works to get that data together? Um, two questions, actually, if I may. Um, the first one is, what systems do you have for deciding when particular data series is no longer required? Because there is a tendency in databases to simply aggregate more and more information. And I know it's quite difficult when you're talking about um, machine learning and data mining. You don't really know in advance what uh, is going to turn out. But at a certain stage, you've got to draw the line somewhere and say, this is not being used, this is not worth having. Um, and the second question really is, how are you having problems with um, data definitions? Thank you. Okay, so in terms of the data collection, we do a lot of it through those uh, statutory powers. We have worked with industry to try and work on a collaborative basis. So one of the things that the National Data Repository does is it gives organizations that are working together the ability to share data amongst them prior to public release so that they can use that data to collaborate and hold it in one place rather than in multiple places. And um, we haven't gone down the MOU route as such, primarily because the, the data powers that we've got in place are quite extensive and actually having those powers, we haven't necessarily had to use any of the, the sanction abilities in there because just having the powers has encouraged people to, to provide the data to us. That said, we haven't seen a massive um, issue in terms of, of data sharing with the industry. Um, data series not required, it's always an interesting one, isn't it? But we, in the data powers we've got, we have set out some sort of clear areas, but we've also then put a lot of the requirements into guidance. And the reason for that is to give us the flexibility that if in the future we see that a certain type of data isn't needed anymore, then we won't continue to collect it purely because we've always done it that way. Um, so we're just trying try to keep up to date in terms of, in terms of that. Um, data definitions, has anyone been able to come up with a, a nice easy way to do data definitions? Um, I wouldn't say that we've got an easy solution to that one but we do work quite closely with industry um, and make sure that we're as consistent as possible in terms of the definitions that are used. And I think we can squeeze in one more set of questions. We've got one down here and we've got one towards the back as well. Thank you. Let's start down the front. Um, just about your decision to create your own platforms to share data publicly as opposed to maybe using sort of centralized platforms or anything about that and why that decision was made or if that's historic or anything. Thank you. And then towards the back. Yeah. I was just wondering if you have um, any sort of use cases of people who have downloaded this data and then run machine learning or whatever on it um, that you're particularly excited about. Um, so in terms of using our own platform, so the open data site we run, but we do use um, 
software basis, so that's runoff ESRI. Um, we, with the National Data Repository, are actually working in collaboration with a platform that was already in place with industry. Um, the reason that that wasn't working um, for the full extent was it was only available to people that were members of that subscription basis, so it wasn't available to the public. So we've actually taken the product that was there and built on that to use it for a, a wider basis. So I think the reason for going down the, our platform route was that the systems were already in place that we could build on, so it's, it's sort of a bit of both. Um, in terms of the use cases, we do. Um, a large number of them that I've heard about, though, are commercially sensitive, so unfortunately I can't share them. But I can, can tell you that there are a, a number of particularly small businesses working in the North Sea that are taking that data and using it to start, start working with machine learning. But sorry, I can't give you a, a better answer on that one. Excellent. Nick, thank you very much indeed. Now, just before I welcome David from 360 Giving to the stage, I did joke during the opening presentation that maybe another MP had announced that they weren't going to stand <laughs> at the next election. We are up to 69, I'm reliably informed. Lady Sylvia Herman uh, from one of the independents in Northern Ireland. So there we are, live updates, real time. Welcome to the Institute for Government. <clears throat> uh, and on that note, David. Hi there. Um, so my name's David Kane. I'm a... Um, uh, a researcher and data, data scientist. Um, I've, uh, I work for 360 Giving. Um, we're, a, um, uh, we're a charity. We were set up by a philanthropist about five years ago. Um, and we help grant makers um, share data about uh, who they fund. Um, so we do that by, uh, by kind of stewarding a, a data standard and we give them support to, to kind of publish that data. Um, and we also help try and help people kind of use that data and, and make the most of it. Um, the, uh, we work with all types of grant makers, so a lot of charitable grant makers, but also government. Um, we're working with the Cabinet Office to try and get um, the, the list of every, every grant that government makes out uh, as open data. And we're also uh, an approved government uh, data standard. Um, uh, so I've been working at three, with 360 for a little while. I've also done freelance work. I worked for um, NCBO, the, the umbrella body for charities, for a while. Uh, some of my colleagues I've noticed in the audience. Uh, so any difficult questions to them, please. Um, and uh, so I wanted to also talk a bit about kind of wider um, charity data and, and the kind of charity data um, ecosystem. Um, and kind of focus on, I'm, I'm kind of talking here about data about charities. There's obviously kind of data published by charities and data for charities. There's a kind of much, much wider areas. And I guess um, my reflection is that the, the, the kind of charity data ecosystem is fairly immature. Um, NCBO and others do lots of, of kind of great work in the area. But compared to other sectors, it's, it's perhaps... Um, not, not kind of fully reached its potential. But I think there is a lot of potential for using data to help charities do their work and, um, and do things like get governments and charities working better together. So what problems can we solve with um, charity data? Well, you can answer the kind of questions that NCVO do try to answer, so things about the size of the voluntary sector, um, uh, its value to the economy, where it fits in terms of the economy and uh, the rest of society, and kind of making sure its voice is, is heard when um, through the, the, the kind of power of the data. Um, I think this, 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 
data about charities can help um, government understand where its funding is going better. Um, government is an enormously important funder of the sector, um, and I think there's, there's potential for um, uh, making sure the next kids' company can be kind of caught before it happens. There's potential for using charity data to do kind of operational stuff, due diligence, um, if you're making grants, for example. Um, the, the Charity Commission does a lot of uh, kind of regulatory work, making sure charities are being run properly and are um, kind of up to scratch. I think there's an important gap in local understanding of, of the sector. So if you're a local authority or a, a local community foundation or council for voluntary service, understanding what's happening in your local area and how does that differ from, from other areas. And I think also there's, there's an important part about um, splitting up the, the voluntary sector and looking at the different subsectors and, and how they interact with the rest of, of kind of society and other forms of, of organisation. So, what data is available? There's three regulators um, uh, in England, Wales, Scotland, and then Northern Ireland. There's a lot of data at HMRC, but um, they don't release any of that um, kind of publicly. Um, and the data isn't standardised between these different data sources. So if you want a kind of holistic picture of the UK, you do have to kind of um, pick and choose um, uh, and merge between them. Um, the Charity Commission's probably got the most uh, information, lots of kind of rich financial uh, geographical data, lots of descriptions. Um, and then um, we can also then bring in geographical data into this. Um, there's uh, organisations like 360 Giving, uh, help uh, uh, publish a lot more data into that ecosystem. And there are other kind of open data sources that, that might talk about charities or give information. There's things like uh, uh, the gender pay gap data that's been um, published, uh, things like the Care Quality Commission and housing regulators, Companies House, all kind of um, bring in a bit of the picture of, of what's happening to charities. But there are also big gaps. Um, a, a a big gap that I've uh, tried to look into a couple of times is uh, looking at under-the-radar organisations, those, those organisations that aren't appearing on official registers, uh, perhaps because they're too small. Um, so I thought I'd show some examples of how uh, this kind of data has been, um, been used and what you can do with it. So um, this is a, a website called CharityBase, um, uh, made by a guy called Dan, and he's taken the Charity Commission register and turned it into a uh, a format that's slightly easier, particularly for developers to use, but also kind of added value, adding things like logos and um, a lot of extra information um, that, that really makes it a good resource for people starting uh, to look at charity data. Um, this is a similar site that, I've, uh, that I created called Find That Charity, and that has a particular use case, which is where you've got the name of a charity, but you want to get its charity number, so you can uh, then link from that to lots of other data sources, so it brings in um, lots of different data sources to, to help you do that. Um, this is a bit of work that a, an organisation called The Four did, um, and they um, they looked at they wanted to see how their grant, grantees had performed in comparison to a sort of matched benchmarking group of organisations. So I helped them kind of wrangle the data to, to be able to, to answer that question and start to to, to look at things like are they um, uh, are, are their grantees outperforming the other, other similar charities that haven't received money um, from, from them? Um, this is a tool that we've launched at um, 360 Giving called 360 Insights. 
And this is where I think the potential for kind of linking data sets together really comes in. So this takes data that's published to the 360 giving standard about grants and then brings in geographical data and um, uh, data from the Charity Commission to kind of get a, a, a view of, of those grants. And, and we found that publishers, data publishers that have used this have discovered new things that they didn't know about their, their own grants. Um, and this, this is a report published by the Young Foundation um, where they took data from 360 Giving as well as Charity Commission data to try and help understand what's the um, uh, a, a sense of the kind of strength of social sector activity in, in particular areas and then compared that to um, uh, the Brexit vote uh, amongst other, other things. So that's a kind of whistle-stop tour of, of, uh, uh, of what's happening in charity data. Um, I think there's lots of uh, kind of gaps. There is uh, data quality can be quite poor. We get long time lags, weird and wonderful data formats. The, the fact that there's three different regulators using different standards isn't always helpful. But I feel like there's lots of uh, opportunities if we can get data standards working, if we can link data sources together. Um, we're really passionate about things like organization identifiers for, for linking things together. Um, I think, yeah, there's a, there's a real opportunity to kind of build a data infrastructure for, for the charity sector. Um, so that's me. Seven seconds left. <laughs> Thank you very much, David. A perfect room to be passionate about organisation identifiers in, <laughs> I think. Um, <clears throat> who has got questions for David? Okay, so we've got one there, one there, and another one down here as well. Uh, hi, uh, in practice, um, with the, it's a really picky technical question about one of the uh, use cases you showed, the patchwork philanthropy thing. Was that showing the source of the funding or the destination? Thank you. And just a few rows behind. Thanks. Um, clearly, you were focusing on um, NGOs, charities who are, are um, looking at the domestic sector. I just wonder if any of this is applicable to NGOs who are operating internationally. Obviously, that's you know tricky data with performance of uh, recipients, etc. But do you do any stuff on the international side as well? Hi, I'm Mark from Shore Trust. Um, we receive a lot of government and local government funding to deliver various programs for disadvantaged people. Um, I just wondered if you can set out any best practice you've seen um, amongst grant recipients, charities that have used data to solve intractable problems or you know, deliver really great programs or campaigns. Um, thanks. Okay. Um, uh, so in terms of um, looking at the source or the destination of funding, it's definitely an issue. Um, the, the 360 giving standard does allow you to talk about both the, um, what we call the recipient location, which is like the organization, and then a beneficiary location, which is kind of where the thing actually happens. Um, the, the beneficiary location stuff is in the more kind of optional, you, you, you can do it kind of side of things. So. Um, not a lot of publishers are using that. So the approach for, um, for, uh, for the Patchwork Philanthropy Report was more based around looking at um, 
uh, only grants that went to organisations that we thought, based on the Charity Commission data, were local organisations. So those ones that look like, so there's, there's various bits of information they provide to the Charity Commission where you can kind of take a guess that they're probably a kind of small local uh, organisation and their, their activities are happening pretty close to the registered kind of postcode of their headquarters. Um, so yeah, but it's definitely, it, it's a big problem in, in kind of whatever you're doing, that kind of headquarters effect of if you drew a circle seven miles around here, you'd get like 90% of the, the expenditure of, of charities. Um, in terms of international uh, NGOs, it's not some, well, it's not an explicit part of what 360 Giving does, but there are, there's definitely related um, kind of activities happening. Um, predating 360 Giving is a data standard called IATI, which is the International Aid Transparency Initiative. Um, uh, and that's kind of not completely incompatible with, with 360 Giving, and we certainly kind of share aims. And, um, and so that's for the kind of aid sector, that's, that's something. Um, and I also worked on a project with um, the University of Sheffield looking at um, uh, organizations that are on the Charity Commission register but that work overseas and kind of looking at where, where they go. So that's called NGO Explorer if you wanted to, to have a look at that. But it, yeah, it's definitely a kind of key part. Um, in terms of the, the, the kind of best practice for kind of data use of, of grant recipients, I think. Um, I'm not sure any example. So uh, the people whose work I really like yeah, is data, an organization called Datakind who try to match kind of the, the skills of data scientists often in industry with kind of the needs of, of charities. And they've got some fantastic examples of kind of rich um, uh, intelligence that can be gained from, from kind of bringing those two, um, those two groups of, of people together. And, um, so yeah, uh, have a look at their, their Twitter and, and website and stuff, and they've got some great examples. Uh, next set of questions. I think you already know what I'm going to say about the balance. Thank you. We've got a question <laughs> there. <clears throat> Any others? And we've got another one down here as well. Uh, Sui Lang Harris. I guess I've got sort of a two-parter of a question. Um, one is in relation to um, whether you find that sort of culture ends up being a bit of a barrier to adopting um, the aims of 360 giving uh, and I guess a combined um, barrier I would anticipate in addition to culture would be resources um, for non-profits to be able to um, monitor data quality and meet any kind of harmonised standards and what have you. And then the second part being what if I'm right in anticipating that those two things might be barriers, what is 360 giving uh, doing to sort of address those barriers? Thank you. And question down the front here as well. Yeah, well, that's the same question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 partly, but I've uh, had experience with some large charities attempting to share data, and the willingness to uh, give up detailed de data is, is limited. Um, and then the question arises, what are you going to give them in exchange? Thank you. Uh, it, it, it's an excellent uh, question. Um, uh, in many ways, the, the kind of target audience for 360 giving is sort of the worst place to start because a lot of our, the people we're trying to convince about this stuff are kind of private foundations. They, they often... 
um, might not see it as, as their role to be kind of providing that, that public accountability. Um, so that, that has been really, really tricky. And, and often, uh, on the resources point, they, they often might not have a website, let alone kind of know about publishing open data. So um, it, it, it's definitely been something we've, we've had to work through. Some of the, I, I guess we've used kind of carrots and, and sticks in that approach. Some of, um, uh, we, we've got a really um, kind of, what it, it's now two people kind of working directly with, with publishers, and there's quite a lot of, kind of relationship building and um, uh, sort of almost hand-holding that goes through the, the process of making sure that they're, they're kind of confident about publishing. And that's as much about the, um, the kind of cultural stuff as it is about the, the technical stuff. So making sure they're, they're kind of confident and happy with what it means to, to put the data on your website and what open licensing means and all of those kind of um, implications. And so quite a lot of that is kind of um, direct one-to-one -one work with, with the organization. Um, and then you've got some of the, 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 the kind of sticks of um, uh, there's lots of uh, if someone else is doing it, then, then the, the CEO might be embarrassed that they're not doing it. Those kind of um, networking effects that, that we can use as well to, to kind of build up the, um, the willingness of people to share. And I think the, the most powerful one of those is where we can show that organizations are really kind of using the data and, and making the most of it. So we've got lots of examples of people, um, like the, the, the biggest audience for sharing your data is, is almost yourself. And, um, uh, and actually people discovering things they didn't realize or kind of confirming things that they hadn't been able to, to kind of pinpoint before is definitely part of what can help convince others to do the same. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> so I don't think any more MPs have stood down. So <laughs> um, our final speaker tonight, last but definitely not least, we have Miranda from the Open Data Institute. talking about the national data strategy, but um, local data, local public services using data. Um, so I'm going to introduce the uh, Open Data Institute um, briefly, just in case uh, certain members of the audience haven't come across before us. And then I wanted to talk to a specific project that we've been doing for the, about the last two and a half years, looking at local public services and data. So um, this is the ODI's mission and vision. So, you know, I think everybody can agree that we want a world where data works for everyone. And the way that we look to do that is by working with both companies and governments to build an open and trustworthy data ecosystem. Um, we are sometimes known as the Open Comma Data Institute, as opposed to just thinking about open data. We think about the entire data spectrum. So uh, open data being, uh, of course, uh, data that anybody can access, use, and share. Um, some data we recognize very much needs to be closed, but then you have this really interesting, vibrant space in the middle as well around shared data. And overall, we default uh, often to closed infrastructures, whereas we advocate for thinking about how we can make things more open, as open as possible. This is a, um, a, a diagram which uh, sums up our theory of change, just to, just to briefly talk you through it. We think that the 
most effective use of data, if you use data to make better decisions, that's what creates both positive social uh, and economic impacts. And there are three layers of value in there. So um, there are data stewards. If data is being stewarded, as well, stewarded well, then that enables individuals and organizations to create um, applications, services, infrastructures that enable better decisions and therefore enable that positive impact. But we see two potential negative uh, scenarios, one being data hoarding, whereby data is understood to have fundamental value in and of itself and is treated like a commodity um, and therefore is restricted. The other being data fearing, where um, individuals and organizations are concerned about the use of their data and therefore, again, restrict it. So in order to counter those two, um, those two uh, scenarios, we advocate for building openness, but also trust. And that's where this idea of an open and trustworthy data ecosystem comes in. And these various um, uh, sub-levers, I guess you call them, these arrows down here, are the ways that we think we need to do that. So that's by advocating for ethics, for equity, for engagement with a, with a range of different communities, but also by demonstrating innovation by building capability and by building data infrastructure. And then the list of relatively optional things on the right um, or on the left, depending on which direction you're looking at the screen, uh, is um, uh, what we actually do. So strategic advice, research, training. And the work that I'm about to talk to you about um, essentially uh, was looking at this question. So why aren't there more open data public service case studies? We often talk about TFL. We often talk about CityMapper and other applications that have been developed there. There was a very uh, interesting Deloitte um, review that put the number of 130 million pounds worth of value on that in terms of um, uh, cost savings and things like that. But we haven't necessarily seen the conversation develop further. So the fundamental question there was why? What are the barriers? Um, and how can we understand that a little bit more? <coughs> So I'll talk you through exactly what we did in slightly more detail, but the, the, the summary of it is that we can see that if you use data for public services, there are a range of different um, benefits and uh, mechanisms that you can employ. So um, when we do see data, open and shared data being used for public services, we can see that uh, it can enable better access to those services, more efficient services, um, and more informed policy de development, that, that direct relationship with making better decisions. And often we see these benefits being employed in combination. So you start by making better decisions, and that means that you can have uh, more efficient service delivery chains. But what sits underneath all of this fundamentally is that there can be uh, cost savings for the local authorities themselves, but also more empowered citizens and better services. And that is really important. It's very easy uh, when I go around talking about this work to get sidetracked by the, the, by the details, but fundamentally that's, that's why this is a useful thing to be thinking about. So we started by funding some local councils. Uh, we did it in two rounds. Um, the first round was just really open and saying we would like to fund uh, four local authorities to do open data service delivery design projects. And they were doing it in, in partnership with uh, service design agencies as well. And then we did a second round of uh, funded projects which were specifically looking at geospatial data because there was an enormous amount of opportunity by uh, better utilization of geospatial data. And then we wrapped all up those learnings into this report here, um, which is where we've got that lovely grid there. 
This report also was looking at national uh, examples of public services, both um, uh, central government and third sector. Um, so we have quite a broad range of insights there as to uh, the use of uh, open and shared data across the um, public sector and also some of the barriers. But I wanted to talk to you about a couple of the examples of what we saw in these projects. So in North Lanarkshire, we did this project which was about FOI requests for business rate data. Um, it was a really small project, but essentially the outcome of it was that the, those responsible for the service changed their understanding of what the actual service was. Instead of providing FOI request responses, they published the business rate data and started to see the service itself as the provision of the core data. And that saved them a significant amount of uh, money. Um, obviously, we don't want to get rid of all of the FOI request, FOI request infrastructure. We don't want to over-digitize all of our services because um, digital inclusion is an issue that we need to maintain in our minds. Um, but it was a very successful uh, project which ended up winning an award. And fundamentally, it empowered citizens to have the information that they needed when they needed it. A very different project was in Falkirk, just up the road. And this was working uh, with uh, services that the council was um, doing in order to mitigate the harmful impacts of poverty. And this was part of our geospatial work. And uh, essentially, it was um, documenting and mapping where the services that could be relevant to um, a vulnerable person who could be uh, in need of things like food banks where they were, how to get to them, what their opening times were, relatively basic things, but mapping them geospatially so that uh, users could find them more easily and use them. And again, that comes back down to more empowered citizens, better access to services, and also more informed policy making because you can uh, understand what services are being used through a different data lens. In Kent, um, again, another geospatial project, uh, they used, oh, I'm running out of time. Uh, they, used, uh, they used the data to improve their uh, predictions there quite a lot. Um, and then in Oxfordshire, they also were using um, communities to map their cycle infrastructure. So um, overall, the barriers that we saw uh, that, uh, that we have been trying to mitigate are these ones here. So we see these barriers over and over again in local authorities. And you know, they're not actually data problems. They're <coughs> cultural problems. They're human problems. And so we created uh, a toolkit. There we go. Uh, and if you'd like to know more about the toolkit, then let me know afterwards. But I have massively overshot my time, so I'm really sorry about that. There you go. I mean, I'm sure if anybody wanted to ask about the toolkit or barriers within uh, local government. Um, so who'd like to ask the first round of questions? Lots to dig into there. We've got Miranda down here, Sui Lang there, and we've got the back row as well. Um, on the TfL and CityMapper question, mm -hmm. do you think it's right that CityMapper should take TfL's open data and then charge TfL for the use of it afterwards? Thank you. And then we've got uh, Sweeling again. Sweeling Harris from the Legal Education Foundation again. Um, really interested in particular in the project focused on addressing poverty through um, access to data and open data and was just curious whether that project had an evidence base for the services that help to uh, mitigate, address, avoid poverty. Um, one of the particular interests for my foundation would be access to legal services and whether there was useful data on the different kinds of 
sources of uh, free legal advice. Thank you. And uh, Jack Tyndale, not from the all-party parliamentary group on data analytics, which of course does not exist at the moment. Um, uh, I'd be interested to know, what do you think is the best way of sort of uh, developing or avoiding the skills gap that one tends to get, uh, particularly at uh, local government in sort of addressing very highfalutin concerns and matters pertaining to data with uh, the local government level and what can be done to address that. Thank you. Okay, uh, thank you, Father Miranda, for that thorny question. Um, and it is a thorny question. One of the really interesting things about the TfL uh, case study is that it has created a data ecosystem around it. There are multiple uh, new businesses and services that are uh, developing around it and uh, enabling citizens to access that service better, which is, I reckon, net positive. Um, however, there isn't a business model apart from this for CityMapper, really. Um, so that creates an interesting tension. I'm talking around this because essentially I don't have a clear answer for you. I don't know. It's a difficult topic. But I think it's one that we can carry on engaging with. And we need to do it in a way with more case studies and examples. This is the thing. In a deficit of only talking about TfL at all times, like TfL is a very, very specific public service. There kind of aren't really that many more in the country like them. Um, so can we continue that conversation later? Thank you very much. Um, in terms of poverty in the evidence base, again, I'm so sorry, but I don't know. Um, but I will, I can put you in touch with uh, the people up in Falkirk who are running that strategy and they are doing some absolutely fantastic work, so I really recommend you get in touch with them. Um, and then in terms of avoiding the skills gap in local government, so MHCLG are doing some interesting work there um, and working with uh, the Cabinet Office as well. Um, in terms of what skills people need, it really is from a ground-up perspective. We don't need everybody to be able to whip up machine learning uh, models and things like that, but it's really about starting from the perspective of saying, um, what questions can I ask of data? What data do we even have? That is, dare I say it, one of the biggest barriers. Clarity about uh, what data is there and who is accountable for it fundamentally preclude people from being able to engage with uh, with the opportunities that data can pro provide. So um, there's a skills thing in terms of uh, enabling people to have that uh, understanding language um, uh, and experience, but also there's just a clarity around infrastructure and availability of data. Questions? We've got one right down here at the front, one in the middle, and then we've got, let's take the three in the back row as well, why not? Um, do you think that, I think a lot of people use data all the time for their own work, but they use it on the basis of, I feel like it's good enough to give me a good steer. But when you have that tension of sharing it with someone else, for someone else to look at it, do, there's a barrier there because you have to be 100% bang on to be com, you know, confident about sharing that data externally. And we're always told, you know, no one knows that very few people have perfect data, but we have it's good enough, use it, because it's better than nothing. How do you kind of take that, make that shift from being good enough to being confident enough to share, and kind of, is there a sort of a, a way you could get more data out there being shared by being less, it has to be so perfect? I don't know, it's just interesting. Thank you, uh, then we've got the middle row there. Uh, 
Um, yeah, I wanted to ask about um, unknown unknowns. So where if you, I, there's a huge benefit in opening up more data, making it more available, but as you pointed out, it's, um, there are some data sets that really can't be made open. Um, is there a risk that but because open data isn't that much more easy to work with, that you're going you're gonna, to um, encourage solutions to what is available and then there's going to be kind of less investment in the more challenging, more difficult to solve problems that cannot be solved with open data? Thank you. And we've got three very quick questions in the back row um, as well. Um, so it was partly sort of a, a more reflection on the, the 79,000, the no, 7,900% increase in accuracy that, that's definitely, that is the, that is the number. Um, but it's, I think the question that comes from that connects to the thing you made about skills, but really sort of um, that piece around how, how bad was the model that had been used before or the approach that had been used before? Thank you. Um, you spoke a little about, just then about uh, people being aware that the data sets exist. Um, I was wondering uh, what you thought about to what extent people understand the value of those data sets and if the value isn't fully understood or appreciated yet, what could be done to um, improve that awareness? Thanks. Hi. Um, I was just wondering when you're looking at access to services, have you done any linking to journey time data or any journey time modeling, um, particularly if you're looking at kind of people in poverty um, and their kind of dependence on public transport and whether there's any difference in access from car or public transport journeys? Thank you. So in 90 seconds. <laughs> Six questions. Um, there will be yes and no answers and I will need to read my own writing. Okay, good steer. Um, very difficult in terms of data quality and getting it out there. There's, there's, it's about human infrastructure as well as technical infrastructure and being able to share something with caveats and say, this is the, the, these are the known unknowns of this data set, this is the context it was gathered in, this is the way it was gathered, that practical metadata, as it were, but also being able to um, talk about the limitations and, and confront those limitations is incredibly important. And in my opinion, I don't think we've quite got there yet, and we need to be better at that. Um, in terms of known unknowns, there's basically no investment in this at the moment anyway, so I'd rather start with the things that we can um, start doing, and then those intractable unknown problems. <coughs> you know, will emerge, hopefully, and then we can get there. I am rushing, okay. Uh, Kent, it was, yeah, it was pretty bad. Um, <laughs> uh, but the use of geospatial data really, really helps. Um, uh, understanding the value of the data, fascinating question, massive topic. We do have this approach of data equals value, data equals, you know, oil and stuff and insight and knowledge and, you know, things that we, you know, assume to be valuable, but what that value is is very difficult. I don't have an answer for you right now, but my colleague Lawrence is working on a project with Diane Coyle about the, and the Nuffield Foundation about the value of data to try and create a taxonomy about how we start describing that, so get in touch with him if you'd like to know about that a little bit more. Um, I am out of time, so I am going to answer this last one. In terms of access to services, it was uh, mapping the services in a geospatial way, which enabled the local council to start understanding that and start linking together different types of public services, because again, there was a lot of siloing happening. Um, I hope those very rushed answers were vaguely useful. Thank you very much.
and uh, good luck in your new role as uh, just a minute panelist, I think, based on that. <laughs> um, I know better than to keep you all from the free wine and nibbles for too long. Um, we will also be heading to the pub afterwards if anybody hangs around, but a few very quick parish notices. As I said, next week the Institute for Government and SIPFA will be launching the next edition of our Performance Tracker reports. Please do sign up. Um, to the website and come along to that. Um, do keep the 4th of December free. We'd love to do another data bites. If anybody's interested in funding, please do talk to me or my colleague, Pratesh. Um, we can only keep the series going through um, sponsorship and support. Um, all that is left for me to say are some very big thank yous. First of all, to Ordnance Survey for allowing tonight's event to go ahead and uh, supporting and providing us with Miranda as well. Terrific. Um, <laughs> Second, thank you to all of you for coming and being such a brilliant audience with great questions, even though most of you weren't really allowed to speak tonight, so we do really appreciate that. And finally, please join me in giving a very big hand to four fantastic speakers this evening. Thank you very much indeed.